According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to the word of God to Luke chapter 2 this morning. Luke chapter 2. We are examining the witness of Simeon and Anna. I believe we wrapped up Simeon last week, and we'll uh, take a look at Anna here this morning. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer and assure that we are filled with the Spirit. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, uh, for us to be sitting here this morning in carnality would be a waste of time and would be an insult to your grace, but we thank you that you've made possible for us to confess, made possible for us to be restored to fellowship, made possible for us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that the Holy Spirit is faithful to guide us into the truth. We thank you that through the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit, even a finite, limited creature can take in the infinite, limitless truth of your word. We ask now for your hand of blessing upon our time of study this morning, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. As we deal with the witness of Simeon and Anna, we saw under point one the care that Joseph and Mary took. Joseph and Mary were careful to obey all their angelic instructions and observe all Mosaic Law commandments. Very important, of course, that... uh, Jesus, as he's growing up, is observing this in his parents. He's observing what their priorities are. He's observing the care that they take to be obedient to the Word of God. Of course, he likewise will be obedient to the Word of God, will exercise great care in doing so. Uh, It's rather important that he does, don't you think, that he remains sinless, spotless, and blameless to the point of the cross. And so the role of the parents in his early training is is obviously critical and, and Quite remarkable as we observe it in the just the brief glimpses that we have in the gospel record. We saw secondly in verses 25 through 38 that there are two servants. Let me get my number lock on here. There are two servants standing by, servants of the Lord that are standing by, and they are at the temple waiting to testify to the birth of Messiah. And uh, these servants are, of course, Simeon and Anna. And we've spent the time. Uh, last week dealing with Simeon, and we're going to move on this week dealing with uh, the uh, verses there that apply to Anna, verses 36 through 38. Simeon actually gets 11 verses, Anna gets 3, but having, I think, done the groundwork with Simeon, we understand the principle that applies to both witnesses in that God is uh, very publicly and very openly before the world declaring his son. And so uh, we have these issues here. Now, I forgot to mark down where we left off. Did we give you all the points under point two here with Simeon? Uh, Simeon was A, and then there should have been a one, two, three, four, five. Do you have all that? And then under five, do you have the A, B, and C? Do you have A, B, and C under point five? Maybe not. All right, well, we'll go back to that then, and then we'll pick up from there. As far as Simeon is concerned, under point one, we looked at his description. Under point two, we examined his promise. The description was quite remarkable in that he was described as righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Under point two, we examined the promise that he would not physically die until he has seen the Lord's Christ. The Lord's Christ. And we spent a little bit of time describing the fact that the anointed one belongs to the Lord. And uh, he's not Israel's Christ, although they come to look at him as their Christ. Uh, he's not, he does not belong to Israel, does not belong to the Jews, although, uh, although he's born a Jew. He is the provision for the entire human race, but ultimately speaking, he is the Lord's anointed one, the anointed one of Jehovah. Under point three, we examine some legends about Simeon and the things there, the extra-biblical writings, apocryphal writings, and so forth. Point four, Simeon took the baby Jesus into his arms and blessed God. The privilege we have in our thanksgiving and our praise is that not only is it a sweet-smelling savor that is pleasing to the Lord, but it actually blesses the Lord. And then finally, point five, Simeon's message is referred to as the Nunc Dimittis, coming from the Latin Vulgate, the Nunc Dimittis. Now, in the course of this, 
there's an A, B, and a C, and I did not give those to you last week? I give you A and B. Oh, well, that's pretty close then. Um, Subpoint A then, Simeon viewed his physical death as the release of a despot's slave. Not, uh, not, a, not the Lord's slave, not Kyrios, but despot. Then B, though promised to see the Lord's Christ, Simeon declared that his eyes have seen the Lord's salvation. He understood the equivalence of Christ with Savior. He understood that in expecting the consolation of Israel, looking for the consolation of Israel, looking for the coming Christos, or the coming Mashiach in the Hebrew, the coming Christ, he was looking for a Savior. And it's really an interesting contrast here with verse 30. When you glance back up to see the promise in verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And then in verse 30, he says, speaking to the Lord, he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. And so he is equating the Christ with the salvation, recognizing that man could not redeem himself, but that God would become a man and redeem the human race. And so he says here, my eyes, he says, Adon, Su has seen your salvation. King in also on the pronoun here as well, your salvation, just as he is the Lord's Christ. He's not Israel's Christ, not primarily. He becomes Israel's Christ, but he also becomes the Gentile's Christ. He's the Christ for the whole human race and our redemption. But he is first and foremost the Lord's Christ. Likewise, in terms of salvation, whose salvation is it? Well, I got saved. Can I say then that it's my salvation? Or is it the Lord's salvation? As he says here, I have seen your salvation. And hopefully, the more we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the more we will start to examine Scripture from a theocentric perspective, God's viewpoint, as opposed to the human-centric, anthropocentric perspective, which is entirely human and really far too finite, I think, for an accurate approach. Then finally, point C, which is the highlight of verses 31 and 32. God's redemptive plan was for all the peoples, Gentiles and Jews alike. Israel was waiting for... Their coming Christ. Israel was waiting for the son of David to arise. But most Israel had a political framework. <clears throat> they were hoping for a political deliverance. They were hoping to be removed out from under the Roman dominion. Had lost track of the plan of salvation. Had lost track of what the spiritual issues were with respect to the coming Christ. And we're really looking forward to lording it over the Gentiles as opposed to ministering to the Gentiles. See, the fulfillment of the consolation of Israel, the fulfillment of the Holy Spirit's ministry through the Jewish people in the Millennial Kingdom, is going to be an evangelism and spiritual teaching ministry to the Gentile people. In the Millennial Kingdom of Jesus Christ, the Jews are going to be the Spirit-filled ministers of the Word of God to the Gentile nations. And uh, some of this, hopefully, will uh, become more certain in future uh, millennial studies, but let's just make sure we're solid on it here this morning. Again, look what it says in verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. The consolation of Israel. The comfort of Israel. We know who the comforter is, and we know at what point of time the ultimate bestowal of the Holy Spirit upon Israel is going to be fulfilled. That's going to be the millennial kingdom. They've not yet seen this. Now, we have an advantage of a perspective of being able to look back at first advent and look forward to second advent, and we're in a position to see that these are separate events that we're looking at. Simeon doesn't have that advantage. Simeon's looking ahead. He's looking ahead. He's reading his scriptures. He's looking ahead. He's seeing uh, promises of the coming Christ. He's also seeing promises of the coming Holy Spirit. And so join me in Joel 2 here. We did this two weeks ago, and I don't mind going back and looking at it again. Daniel, Hosea, Joel. If you get to Amos and Obadiah, you've gone too far. Join me back in Joel 2, because I think this is significant in understanding what not only what Simeon was looking for, but also what Simeon starts speaking about here in Luke 2, 31 and 32, when he starts speaking about the light of salvation to the Jews and to the Gentiles.
In Joel 2, keying in on the just these two verses, 28 and 29, there is a much larger context, but we'll let that go for this morning. <clears throat> Verse 28, it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. That I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. Now, some people get confused and say this was fulfilled uh, when the church began at Pentecost. This was fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. And Peter stood up and he said, he said, uh, voila, uh, Joel 2 is now fulfilled and uh, we're not drunk. Okay, That was not Peter's message. Peter did say that he wasn't drunk and he did explain that the charismatic phenomena they were observing there was in fact a spirit filling. But Peter does not declare that Joel 2 in its entirety is fulfilled because it was not. Not even close. Uh, point of fact, there are so many differences between Joel 2 and Acts 2 that you really have to be a sloppy scholar to try to identify them as one and the same. Pouring out the Spirit on all mankind, did that happen when the church began? Of course not. The pouring forth of the Holy Spirit in our uh, stewardship and dispensation is only upon believers. There's a vast majority of all mankind right now that do not have the Holy Spirit because they're not saved. I, I fully believe that the percentage of the population of the world that's saved is quite small because narrow is the gate. And that broad is the path that leads to destruction. Many there are that go there too. I believe that the, the percentages of unbelievers to believers in the world today are, uh, are astronomical, greater than they've ever been. And so a promise of pouring out spirit on all mankind, that cannot be fulfilled until all of the unbelievers are out of here. All of the unbelievers must be removed, and then God can pour out his spirit on all mankind because they'll all be believers. And this is what we understand happens in the beginning of the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. That sheep and goat judgment, all the unbelievers are removed. And uh, we understand that only believers enter into the millennial kingdom. So at that point of time... Just as a, a spirit outpouring shook the, shook the walls in Jerusalem and the church began, I believe that after the sheep and goat judgment, when all the unbelievers are removed from the world, that then will come a great outpouring. And it's not just going to be a room in Jerusalem that shakes. I, the whole world's going to be shaking because everybody on earth at that time will receive the Holy Spirit. So it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. But now notice. And your sons and daughters will prophesy. The whole human race receives the Holy Spirit, but the prophetic gift associated with the Holy Spirit will be limited to the Jewish people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Not the Gentiles, but the Jews. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Notice, even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And those are the bond slaves. There will be bond slave service in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Gentiles will volunteer for bond slave service to the Jewish people for the opportunity to live in the land of promise, to live in the nation of Israel under the rule of Jesus Christ. So there is a universal outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but the prophetic gift will be given to the Jews. All right? And this will be the opportunity that they will have to teach. The opportunity that they will have to minister to Gentiles throughout the uh, Millennial Kingdom. Several differences, of course, and I won't take the time to go to Acts 2 with you here this morning, but there, there's no mention of tongues anywhere in, in, in this Joel passage that we've read. And yet, that's what we have in Acts 2, is the speaking in tongues and the giving the gospel to the Jewish people. All right. Uh, likewise, in Acts 2, there's no mention of prophecy. And yet that's the total impact of, of Joel 2. So I think that when you, when you chart it out, we have uh, enough differences, and, and it might help to just draw it on a piece of paper and, and, and spell it out that way, is um, just make yourself a couple of columns with Joel 2 and Acts 2 and, and chart it out. And I think you'll do, you'll do marvelous. You have an outpouring of the Spirit, but it's on uh, the whole world. All mankind. And here we have believers. Here the emphasis is on prophecy. No mention of tongues. Here the application is tongues. All right? Quite a few differences in these approaches. And here the context is obviously uh, post-trib. Because of the, of the full context of Joel 2 and when these things will take place. 
And here we have uh, uh, the church age. There's a lot of contrast between Joel 2 and Acts 2, and I think spelling it out in those terms uh, helps us to organize our thinking. Now, we're ministering to the Gentiles in the spiritual ministry here that the Jewish people will have. And so when we come back to uh, Luke 2, and we recognize that it's not only the Jewish people that are going to have a benefit by virtue of the Lord's Christ making his appearance, But it says in verses 31 and 32, verse 30 says, My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. In the presence of all peoples. And that's peoples, plural, meaning the Jewish people, the Greek people, the Egyptian people, the Babylonian people. Okay, all peoples. Don't get confused by person, singular, people, plural. This is peoples, the plural of people. Okay? I'm sure there's a grammatical term for that, but I don't know what it is. Verse 32, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. A light of revelation to the Gentiles, recognizing that throughout the Old Testament, the prophetic ministry was directed towards the Jews. Look at 39 books of the Old Testament. (laughs) They were given to the Jews. What advantage have the, have the Jew? It says in Romans 2, great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. If a Gentile, if, if, if uh, Nebuchadnezzar wanted to learn the word of God, if, if Uriah the Hittite wanted to learn the word of God, if Rahab the harlot or, or uh, uh, Ruth the Moabitess or some Gentile came along and wanted to learn scripture, how are they going to do it? Well, they were going to go find a Jew. Or they're going to find Jewish scriptures. They're going to find Hebrew scriptures. They were going to learn the Hebrew language. All right? A light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. The promise of this light is so remarkable. It comes from Isaiah 11. Is that where that comes from? Let's look it up. Part of the, um, I think it comes from Isaiah 11. Have you guys learned how to use the cross references in your Bibles? So you have a little A that's there and it pops up. It tells you Isaiah 9, 2. See, I'd have been a couple chapters off. I'd have looked at chapter 11 rather than Isaiah 9. And, of course, unlike paper Bibles where you see that, this just replicates what's in the margin. But here you just click and there it takes you. Isaiah 9. Is that too small? Is it too blurry? There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Remarkable prophecy with respect to Galilee. Remarkable prophecy with respect to the provision of light to the Gentile people. In the Old Testament, there's not a whole lot that went on in the realm of Galilee. Jonah was from there, but um, not too many others. Possibly Elijah. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. The rod of their oppressors is at the battle of Midian. It goes on to describe some things here. Now notice verse 6. All right. A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now, was this first advent? Did Jesus Christ sit himself on the throne of David in first advent? Did he start ruling with a rod of iron? No. This is second advent. This is second advent and will it be full, uh, finally and fully fulfilled when he will be seated on the throne when the, uh, the promises that are made here of no end to the increase of his government on the throne of David and so forth. The light that will be revealed to the Gentiles. This is what Simeon's looking for. Now, Simeon doesn't understand that there's two comings. Simeon is just looking to the coming ministry of the Christ. And he's looking ahead to the time when in the consolation of Israel, the Holy Spirit will be ministering through the Jews to the Gentiles in, uh, in this amazing way. 
And so as he's holding this infant, this is his song, this is his praise, this is his thanksgiving. We don't know how old he is, but we know he's ready to go. (laughs) All right. And he's glad now that he'll have the opportunity to do so. So we have Luke 2, 29 through 32. All right. God's redemptive plan was for all the peoples. It says in verse 31, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, Gentiles and Jews alike. Now, the second witness we give you under point B is the witness of Anna. Verses 36 through 38. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple, serving night and day with fasting and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. All right. I guess before we start dealing with Anna, we should probably comment at least we did a couple of weeks back, and this was something that Heidi had a question on with respect to the sword piercing. After his prophetic message, he had private comments. Verses 33 through 35. His father, this is after the uh, conclusion of Simeon's praise. His father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them. See, he'd already blessed the Lord, now he's blessing them. And said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. All right? He has personal warnings here for Mary. It's quite interesting. Both parents are amazed, but only Mary is given the warning. Joseph won't be around to see this opposition. Joseph's not going to live long enough to see uh, Jesus Christ begin his public ministry and see the conflict unfold around him and the things that happen, but Mary will. And Mary, although she's, uh, you know, blessed are you among women, Mary has the privilege and blessing of bringing the Christ into the world and all the joy that goes with that, but The other side of that coin means that she has to stand there at the cross. And she's going to be observing the cross as well and uh, the things that happen there. I find it um, interesting here that we we don't get any indication of what her response is. We see the amazement in verse 33 to the public message. Um... Later on, we see some amazement and some astonishment when when Christ says, I, I must be about my father's business. And uh, and uh, in, in verse 51, uh, his mother treasured all these things in her heart. We find reactions that she has to various messages and various events. But to these hard-hitting words about a sword will pierce your own soul, there is no biblical um, reaction that's recorded there. We don't know how she responds to that. It doesn't say that she treasures it in her heart. It doesn't say that that um, that she was amazed at this. The amazement came in verse 33 at the the public message. This warning here, there's no indication how she received it. And and I'd be very reluctant to try to read anything into that. I think pastors and scholars and people get into trouble when they try to read into things that aren't there and say, oh well, you know, it's it's not recorded. So that must mean such and such. No, it means it's not recorded. <laughs> All right. And it may mean that she struggled with it. It may mean that she accepted it. It doesn't say. And uh, if it was important for us to know, God would have told us how she responded to it. But I think uh, just the pattern of public message and private comments is a neat pattern. See, because we... Um, we experience the same thing in a local church ministry. You have a, a a public message, a Bible class that goes out, and however many people are here, and it's it's fascinating how 20 people can hear a Bible class and walk away with 20 different applications. It's the same message, but the Holy Spirit works it in all these different tests that are going on and the temptations and, and thoughts and things. But then um, comments afterwards, being able to approach the teacher afterwards, being able to, uh, you know, the... Simeon comes along here and he says, you know, this was the message, public message, but now 
in a very private way. Uh, this is targeted just for you. And uh, it's like a bullseye. This is zeroing right in on, on Mary here. And, uh, so, and you talk about the sword piercing. That's what the Word of God does. So uh, I find this to be a, a neat picture of, of how uh, a local church functions, how a, a, a pastor teaches when in the public message is one thing, and then privately, one-on-one, there's more uh, intimacy and there's more freedom in terms of uh, a Bible teacher and a student and, and uh, the things that happen there to say, hey, you know, uh, application time. The Lord's given us this message. What are you going to do with it? Okay. Anyway, there's that. I think um, there were some other questions a couple of weeks back about the sword piercing and the things there, and I and I hope that when we relate this over to Hebrews 12, with the Word of God alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even in the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, that we do well enough understanding the convicting nature of the Word and how we're accountable to uh, apply what we've been taught. All right. Now dealing with Anna. Much as with Simeon, we'll start with a description. So sub-point one is her description. She's described in verses 36 and 37. Her description. First of all, she's called a prophetess. Called a prophetess. So sub-point A, prophetess. Feminine noun, prophetes, in the Greek, is just a feminine form of prophetes, which is a very well-known noun. Feminine form of the masculine noun for prophet, therefore it's prophetess. Interestingly enough, Simeon is not called a prophet in this passage. We're told that he's righteous and devout. We're told that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. We are given the content of his message, which is clearly prophetic. I have no doubt that he was a prophet. That um, the Lord, in desiring with uh, two or three minimum witnesses, he's got two witnesses here. He's got a prophet and a prophetess on hand who can validate the message of the other. Um, But the term prophetes is not actually in the text as it applies to Simeon, but the term prophetes is as it references um, Anna. And uh, I think it's remarkable that she is allowed to dwell in the temple even though she is from the tribe of Asher. And I think the indication is is that she was, not only was she literally a prophetess, but she was recognized as a prophetess by the Levites, by the priests. And because of her prophetess uh, standing, she was given permission to dwell there in uh, the way that's described here. Uh, It may be that that uh, Simeon and his prophetic gift was not recognized. Um, again, this, the sketchy information in the narrative makes that hard to say. There are, though, no shortage of prophetesses in the Old Testament or the New Testament. And uh, we have examples of this in Exodus 15:20, where Miriam is called a prophetess. Judges 4:4 with Deborah. Second Kings 22:14 with Huldah. Isaiah 8.3 with Mrs. Isaiah. <laughs> All right. And then Anna here in Luke 2.36. Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. Don't know if anybody else called her that. In Revelation 2.20. And then uh, the four daughters of Philip in Acts 21.9. A little bit different vocabulary in Acts 21.9. Uh, the noun is not used, but a feminine participle of the verb is used. And uh, since a participle is just a verbal noun, we lump that in and have no problem identifying these. Uh, Let's just glance at a couple of these. I don't mind taking some time here because, you know, uh, the prophets were quite interesting and we, I think we're very familiar with the prophets. We've studied two of them. We've studied Daniel and Ezekiel at at some length. We've seen Samuel and uh, Nathan in the course of developing the life of David's study. Uh, we recognize, I think especially with Samuel, that prophets were sometimes um, terrifying people. Uh, a prophet would come to a village and, and the village elders would go out there and kind of trembling and say, uh, what are you doing here? <laughs> you know, when, when uh, Samuel first arrived at Bethlehem, for example, there was a little unease because, you know, if a prophet showed up, it may not be a good thing. You know, there may be a message of woe. There may be some judgment that was being proclaimed. 
The prophetesses, though, are quite interesting, and, and we only have Miriam and Deborah and uh, and um, Huldah for reference here. So let's look at these three anyway. Exodus 15:20, and, and and they weren't expected to stand forth and to judge and to proclaim woe and do these things. Obviously, Miriam was working in conjunction with Moses, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Um, and I think in that capacity, we find the blessings here. They crossed through the Red Sea. Moses sang a song. Chapter 15, Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord. And it goes on. Moses composes this song and the whole nation of Israel learns it. and They sing it together from verses 1 through verse 18. Then verse 20, Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dancing. Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and his rider he has hurled into the sea. All right, so she takes an element of Moses' song, Moses being the longer song, Moses being the, 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 the leader of Israel, the prophet of, of God's tool here to lead Israel, and, and Miriam is complementing that. She is responding to that song, and she is, in fact, expressing an element of that song here. And uh, with the timbrels and the dancing and the singing and the things that happen here. Okay? Now, later on, Miriam uh, steps out of place, doesn't she? Miriam's pride gets a hold of her. Miriam and Aaron both, right? Start putting themselves up on par with Moses and saying, well, who does Moses think he is? And we're called just like he is. Okay? Tragic flaw on the thinking. (laughs) Yes, you're called just like he is, but you're called to a place below where he is and, and, and subservient to where he is, and you're supposed to be supporting where he is. Okay? The Father always has order in His design. Just that, I mean, think what would happen if the Holy Spirit decided that, well, you know, I'm, I got a ministry just like God the Son has. <laughs> I don't know, I start exalting myself. That's not what He's called to do. The Holy Spirit's called to spotlight Christ. Okay? And so we have this supporting role. And I think we see it again in Judges 4. So turn over there to Judges 4. And Deborah, it's quite interesting. Is really expected to be in a supporting role here for Barak, and Barak won't step up. Which I find remarkable. And quite often, you know, wives find themselves beside themselves because they're supposed to be the helpmate, and the husband they're supposed to be supporting is not the spiritual leader of their home. So then, where does that leave the wife? who loves the Lord and wants to train up a godly seed and wants to minister to the children. And she's designed to support and she's designed to help and she wants to support. And uh, the man needs uh, needs to get it in gear. So she's introduced here. Um, the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And... Uh, the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. It's, it's remarkable. They went through this cycle of, of faithfulness and rebellion, faithfulness and rebellion. And uh, so they're given over again, this time into uh, uh, the nation here with Sisera, the commander of the armies. And then the sons of Israel cried to the Lord in verse 3, for he had 900 iron chariots and he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. Sometimes our divine discipline wakes us up and then continues and just because we cry out to the lord doesn't mean okay all discipline ends you know it's not clear was it year 20 when they finally woke up was it year 10 was it year one when was it well they woke up and then the deliverer was sent. Now, Deborah, the prophetess and the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now, she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinuam. Okay? And Barak should be taking the, uh, the center role here. And um, let Barak chickens out. Verse 8, he says to her, Well, are you, will you go with me? <laughs> All right. I'll go if you go. Okay? 
She said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours uh, on the journey that, the, uh, that you're about to take, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Since you want, uh, you want the security blanket of, of this prophetess to go along with you, then uh, recognizing that, uh, that he was supposed to have the lead, so the consequences are what they are, and that's what happens here in the chapter where Sisera dies, and it's the woman that takes his life. All right. Um, it's interesting there. Now, as far as the rest of this goes, I, I don't want to um, minimize the role that prophetess has had because she is. This is an office. She holds this office that people come to her and she judges. That is, she administers decisions. She speaks on behalf of the Lord. She represents him. She speaks prophetically. That is, his decisions, his judgments, his viewpoints, and so forth. But when it comes to the conflict, when it comes to actually going out and delivering and conquering and battling, this had been assigned to Barak, and he's going to fall short in his responsibility there. All right? Turn over now to Second Kings. And we'll look at Huldah in chapter 22. Second Kings 22. Verse 14, now this is when it comes to inquiring of the Lord. And um, Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, and in verse 8, I have found the book of the law of the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan who read it. Shaphan the scribe came to the king and brought back word to the king and said, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord. Moreover, Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. Say, can you imagine the Bible getting lost for this length of time and no idea that it even existed? When the king heard the words of the Lord, uh, the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Say, scripture convicts. And he realized, man, we haven't been living according to what this book's all about. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Achbor the son of Micaiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Asiah the king's servant. He assembles a team together and he says, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and the people and all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. See, when a king or a president or a leader recognizes that the nation's living in defiance of the word of God, they recognize we're in trouble. We've got to find out what the will of the Lord is so we can start living a life properly. And so where do they go in verse 14? Well, the Bible's been kind of out of circulation for a while. The priests don't know much about the word of God. So Hilkiah the priest, Ahacham, Akbor, Shaphan, Asiah, went to Huldah the prophetess the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikva, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. <laughs> Where are they going to go get some Bible teaching? To the lady in charge of wardrobe. <laughs> you know? I'm just amazed. When, when the Lord wants to put a tool somewhere, he puts a tool somewhere. And we can be praying for that. We can be praying for, you know, it's, it's obvious to be praying for our president and praying for uh, his advisors. We can pray for uh, the Secretary of State. We can pray for Secretary of Defense. We can pray for, you know, what about people that don't have Secretary of in their title? What about, how about the president's barber? You know, how about his steward, the, the person that fixes his coffee in the morning or the, uh, you know, the, the other people that may be in periphery there? How about a Secret Service agent? See, when the Lord puts born-again believers where they need to be, he's going to make use of them. And so here is a prophetess, precisely where she needs to be. And uh, so they spoke to her. And uh, she said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel. And so she has a message to speak. Prophetess is legitimate communication from the Lord, as in the case in the New Testament. All right. 
The reference in Isaiah 8 is reference to Isaiah approaching the prophetess and the baby that then gets born. Luke 2.36 is Anna, the prophetess there in the temple, to testify to the risen Christ. Revelation 2.20 is a false prophetess, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. Uh, The Lord never refers to her as a prophetess. Remember, no one takes that honor to themselves. You must be called of the Lord. And uh, Acts 21.9 applies to the four daughters of, uh, of Philip there, who all four were prophetesses. You know, wouldn't that be great? You know, I've got two daughters. I like that. But, you know, we don't live in that age anymore, so I can't have prophetesses for daughter. But, you know, for a dad who's always concerned about your daughters, you know, it'd be great if your daughters could be prophetesses. You know, they're going out. You say, well, when are you coming back? The prophetesses, they should know right, you know, to the minute. (laughs) You know, are you going to be safe? Who is this guy? Is he a jerk? You know, you know, I, I think that's, that's great to have four daughters as prophetesses. And anyway, that's just a dad. All right. Um, but we also recognize that there is a speaking role for the prophetesses. And yet it's not a shepherding role. It's not an authority role. Um, we have to stop and consider what do we do with the prophetesses in the early church in the age of the apostles. Now, obviously, the prophetesses, along with the prophets, uh, fell under the authority of the apostles as the apostles were establishing churches and they were sending different teachers in different places and so forth. Uh, and yet, when it comes to shepherding, when it comes to pastoring, Paul says very clearly that, that a woman is not to be in that office. He says, for I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Okay, And so I think when we examine it, we do very well. And uh, we recognize that we can have uh, uh, women teaching women. We can have women teaching children. We can have women teaching. Uh, but it's just not in a authority role because just as Deborah was going to assign Barak the military responsibilities, just as Miriam had an assisting role to Moses, uh, the, the, the role for combat and the role for um, the spiritual battle and shepherding that has to take place uh, is designed for the shepherds, for the pastor teachers, for the men that God has called to, uh, to guard a local assembly. Now, let's just look quickly here at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I'll give you a preview on this. I really didn't want to belabor the whole issue here, but... People jump on 1 Corinthians 13:34, and they they act like that's the only verse in the chapter, and they act like that's you know that verse stands on its own and should have a whole book associated with it or something. Okay, it's one verse in a paragraph in a chapter in a book, and we can hopefully establish some context there. But they take 1 Corinthians 34, they immediately wrap it to 1 Timothy to say women can't teach or exercise authority over a man, right? And, and they, they pair up those two verses and they formulate all of these thoughts. Women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Okay, And so, again, they just look at verses 34 and 35 and as if those are the only verses here in the chapter. Well, let's widen our look here a little bit and say, hey, you know what? We're talking about the charismatic gifts. We're talking about utterances from the Lord, which occurred in the early church before there was a completed canon of Scripture, before the New Testament was written. We're specifically addressing tongues, interpretation of tongues, prophecies, that all things must be done for edification. The issues here, after we learn the love lessons in chapter 13, is that we've got to edify here in chapter 14. And in reality, there's much more in chapter 14 that applies to tongues than applies to prophecy, but that's fine. Now, the issue is, is that we are to be edifying. And before you get to the prophetesses called women in verse 34, we've got prophets that are made in verse 29. So we have a local assembly that's assembled together. And the word of God is being taught. And there's two or three prophets that are speaking 
and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. See, one guy, you just can't stand up and say, oh, I'm a prophet. and This is what God's telling me. and You've got to do what I say. Okay, let's go back to that rule of two or three. <laughs> Old Testament, early church, the pattern was there. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Okay, so we got two or three prophets, and they can validate each other's messages, they can support one another, and, and, and the word of God can go forth with orderliness. But now, with the prophets in the local church ministering the word of God, there's no need, in fact it would even be improper, for the prophetesses now to step up and involve themselves in this activity. Okay? So we recognize that the prophets are here in verses 29 through 33 and how they coordinate and support one another. And prophetesses, you have a role. Philip's daughters have a role and the other prophetesses in the early church have a role. But they're not going to step into the ministry of the word that the prophets are engaged in when they're speaking in, uh, in the local assembly. Okay? We'll have more on that when we get to this chapter in 1 Corinthians. In fact, we're going to deal with it extensively. I hope that we can really paint a picture of, of the apostolic age, recognizing it for what it is, and not trying to replicate it today like Charismatics and Pentecostals try to do. Okay, That's over. That was, that was a crutch, a time being, to get us to the point where the Bible can be written, but that's over. We have a New Testament now. All things necessary for life and godliness have been supplied. So we will uh, spell that out, I think, in a much greater extent in uh, the First Corinthians study as we get there. All right. She's described as a prophetess. Secondly, she's from the tribe of Asher. Subpoint B, tribe of Asher. One of the so-called lost tribes. Well, it can't be too lost. Anna knew where she was. Right? Don't, don't fall for this thing about how they were swept away by the Assyrians and they disappeared. Never to be heard from again. Well, what happened in the Assyrian lands? Well, they were overturned by the Babylonians. Because the Babylonians conquered the Assyrians. And so the Jewish people that were swept away into the Assyrian lands, instead of being ruled by the Assyrians, now they're ruled by the Babylonians. And there's some good news there because some prominent Jews are going to be exalted to sit on those thrones with the Babylonians. Daniel and his associates. All right. They're not lost tribes. Asher was the eighth son of Jacob, second son of Zilpah, the maid of Leah. Information on that can be found in the life of Jacob notes and study that we did way back when. It's interesting with respect to Asher, though. At the first numbering, they numbered 41,500, which ranked them ninth. At the second numbering, in the next generation, they uh, numbered 53,400. They actually increased. Quite a few tribes decreased between the two numberings. And they moved up to fifth in the population totals of the nation of Israel. 53,400. I believe that was men able to fight. That was not a total population. That was just the warfare-aged males that numbered that. So they increased in the from the Exodus generation to the wilderness generation. Their territory was on the Mediterranean coast from Carmel northward. If you have your map in the back of your Bible there, Carmel is kind of that hump, that little bump on the coast midway up the uh, Mediterranean coast. From Carmel northward, Manasseh bordered them on the south, Zebulun and Issachar in the southeast, Naphtali on the northeast. They really occupy the northwest corner of the land grant as the divisions were broken down by Joshua after the conquest. The tribe became quite worldly in their association with the Phoenicians. In fact, those were some people they should have conquered, <laughs> but they didn't. The tribe became quite worldly in their association with the Phoenicians. Judges 1, verses 31 and 32, in the description of the judges as this book begins... Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Judges, chapter 1. Asher, 
we got this is all in a long string of things here. Manasseh did not take possession in verse 27. Ephraim did not drive out in verse 29. Zebulun did not drive out in verse 30. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out. The inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Ahlab or Akazib or Helba or of Afik or of Rehob. You wonder, what did they drive out? <laughs> you know? It's kind of interesting to compare the cities they were given and the cities they didn't drive out. What were they left with? So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. They live among Canaanites, specifically the people that would later be known as Phoenicians. Very prosperous, trading people, very wealthy, very worldly, very cosmopolitan, we would say. Remarkably enough, when David broke down his divisions, established some of his sons as princes over them, and established some uh, districts, Asher had no numbering among them in 1 Chronicles 27, verses 16 through 22. You know, if Chronicles bores you to tears, you miss stuff like this. Okay? <laughs> Don't get the attitude that, well, you know, I read it. I read First and Second Kings. I'll just skip First and Second Chronicles. Bad mistake. 1 Chronicles 27, 16 through 22, as David's breaking down the different tribes and the administrative offices and the sons that he puts in charge when he's training princes. All right, his sons to reign as princes. There's no more uh, designation for Asher at that point of time. This information, by the way, comes out of Unger's Bible Dictionary. If you have that at home, it's a good resource. Her third description, main point C, she's advanced in years. She's advanced in years. This is an idiom common to Luke. It is a rather relative term. We were at a prayer meeting a couple weeks back when we were asking about somebody's age and Precious said, I don't think they're that old. I think they're in their 40s. <laughs> and well, you know, that's coming from a single girl in her 20s. All right. So that's a matter of perspective. I think uh, the beverages were sitting there and Gary was sitting there and folks with a little bit, I think Shirley was even there possibly that night. So. Not everyone is looking ahead to the 40s, okay? <laughs> some are looking back, and I guess some are still sitting there looking at it, but age is, uh, is a relative thing. But Luke likes this phrase, and there's really nothing obscure about the fact that advanced in years means that, that you're up there, okay? It was used in verse uh, 7 and 18 of chapter 1 to apply to Zacharias and Elizabeth. It's used in verse 36 here to apply to... Um, to apply it to Anna. Whatever age she is, it's old enough to be widowed and not be remarried again and ever think you're going to have children again and the issues there. The fourth description that comes over under point D, short marriage, long widowhood. Short marriage, long widowhood. Generally speaking, someone that young that is only married for seven years Someone that young would be expected to remarry. In fact, would just in any culture, any society, but specifically when there is a, a husband, a widow that needs to have his name perpetuated, that needs to have his, his uh, seed uh, passed on and the inheritance and all that, it's, uh, it's not only is it expected, but it's, it's biblical. It's required to, in terms of leveret marriage or in terms of of uh, the issues there to carry on that seed. Now, we don't know why this didn't happen. It's possible, being married seven years, that she had a son, and so the, the seed was carried on, and the things were taken care of there. And uh, rather than remarry, she, had, uh, she was called a prophetic office as a prophetess and uh, lived as a widow, which we will examine secondly under her devotion. But the description here in Luke 2 that says she was uh, married for seven years. And we don't know how old she was when she got married, but we anticipate that she was typical marriageable age of that generation of that day. So she was probably 12, <laughs> 14. Okay. We wouldn't think of marrying at that age in our culture, but that's their culture. And... Um, She 
She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, then as a widow to the age of 84. So say she was married at uh, 13, widowed at 20. She's been 64 years in this ministry. There's a woman with some doctrine, (laughs) some maturity, some perspective. All right. Now her devotion in her point two comes in verse 37. As a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. We have a description of a widow's ministry that is very complementary to the New Testament passage that is then given for the church in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 5. We'll see that here. I'm kind of running out of time. Um, Never left the temple, serving night and day, fasting and prayers. Remember, even the Levites had different shifts. They had day shift. They had night shift. The fire was not allowed to go out. But... They didn't work around the clock. They broke down the division. They, they broke down the labor. They took turns. They rotated. Okay, Even Zacharias, who we looked at in chapter 1, he served in his appointed division. He took his turn. He rotated in. He served. Got kind of surprised by Gabriel while he was in there doing it. Okay, And then he rotated out. Somebody else rotated in. Okay. But for these 64 years, or however much it was, I think 60 at a minimum, she never rotated out. She was there to serve and minister as high priest came and high priest left, as Levites came in and Levites left, ministering with uh, the day shift Levites, ministering with the night shift Levites, who, by the way, are the subject of Psalm 134. If you're not familiar with that, I loved it. I, I worked night shift for eight years on, on and off. and um, I'll let you look that up yourself. But that's the night shift there. And there's Psalm working in the temple. Also, the phrase never left the temple is somewhat idiomatic. It, it may not mean that physically, literally, her body never once stepped foot outside the temple to go you know, somewhere else, but she never left this ministry, see. It'd be like a pastor who spends his whole life at a at the same local church and he never left that ministry until the Lord called him home. Okay? You know, Colonel Theme got to Baraka in nineteen fifty and never left never left Baraka. See, never left that ministry, never changed local churches, never took on another ministry and so forth. Okay? So you can accept it. It's it's a valid expression in any language, English, Greek, what have you. This phrase, never left the temple, indicating that that when she placed herself, when the Lord placed her there for service with her prophetic gift in the office of prophetess, that was her work assignment, and that never changed from the point of time until now. I don't think we want to get too uh, worked up over whether or not she went to a family member or whether or not she attended a funeral in another town or, you know, things like that. But serving night and day is, again, significant. It's not that she doesn't sleep. It's not that she, you know, worked 24 hours a day and never slept and she's been awake for the last 65 years. But we're showing the complete nature of her ministry in encouraging the priesthood, encouraging the Levites around the clock on the different shifts, Fastings and prayers. Hers was not the ministry to slaughter animals. Hers was not the ministry to uh, supervise uh, ritual uh, services. She didn't supervise the Passover observances. She didn't supervise the liturgical uh, uh, rituals and any of that. Fastings and prayers. And I guess we'll dismiss with this. Um, over in 1 Timothy 5, we find a, a neat opportunity that widows have to minister in the dispensation of the church. Verse 3 says, Honor widows who are widows indeed. Widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family 
and to make some return to their parents. This is acceptable in the sight of God. Okay? If there are children that are taking care of the widow, that's a good thing. That's the way it's supposed to be. See? For instance, we've got with Mrs. Bean here at Austin Bible Church, Randy Bean, her son, is a godly man. He's very diligent. He's and he, Randy and his wife Sheila are very uh, involved with Nell and watching her and caring for her and so forth. And so uh, as a pastor and deacons in the church, we are not as worked up about Mrs. Bean because, because Randy is doing what he's supposed to be doing. See, But if there was no Randy, okay, if there was no family there to support her, what role would the local church then have? The elders and the deacons and the church family. Honor widows who are widows indeed. Now, verse 5. She who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. An opportunity that a, the widow has, an opportunity to step into a ministry in a local church to become the greatest prayer warrior in the history of that local church. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasures is dead even while she lives. See, she can become a busybody. She can become worldly. She can become sensual. All right? And the things that happen there. We don't want her to become a busybody. Verse 9, a widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old. And that's why I think Anna was probably over that. Having been the wife of one man, and, ha- and that's an interesting phrase. That's the one, one man woman that uh, is the direct opposite of the one woman man requirement for the pastor. Having uh, a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. This is a description of an opportunity that a Christian woman has as a widow to minister, to minister to younger women and to have a prayer ministry in a local church. But refuse to put younger widows on the list for when they feel sensual desires... In disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they've set aside their previous pledge. Okay? And it's not saying it's a bad thing. It's saying that's just the way it is, and they should get remarried and uh, not go along and be idle from house to house as busybodies and the things there. Anyway, there's a lot of teaching here that has reference to widows and the application of the, of the church. And wanted to bring that to your attention as we come back to Anna and recognize that her ministry was one of fastings and prayers. Supporting the priestly ministry that was occurring in the temple there at that time. Finally, point three. Anna's speaking ministry was not for Joseph and Mary, but to all in the temple. As Luke 2 comes to a close here with verse 38, or the chapter doesn't come to a close, but this section comes to a close with verse 38. Her ministry is not to Joseph and and Mary. She comes up and begins giving thanks to God. But who is her address, a message addressed to? It says, and continue to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. She has a public speaking ministry to those in the temple. Simeon has already ministered to Joseph and Mary. Simeon has already taken the lead and and had the the primary ministry here in verses 25 through 35. Now, uh, Anna is coming along to complement that. As again, the two and three minimum witnesses, the Lord is being faithful to provide two witnesses here in the temple to the coming of the Christ. All right, next week we will return to this and we will uh, gain some new ground having wrapped up Jesus' circumcision and the witness of Simeon and Anna. We'll move on in the birth, infancy, and adolescence of Jesus and John the Baptist portion. We'll come to a close there and uh, then start looking at the ministry of John the Baptist and see the baptism event and the beginning of the adult ministry of Jesus Christ. You know, it's, it's so quick from his birth to his adulthood. We have one chapter here where he's 12 years old and goes to the temple. But other than that, from, from birth to baptism, we've got nothing. Okay? <laughs> I can almost get political here. <laughs> There's a candidate out there that from Vietnam to running for president, it's like there was nothing in between. Oh, 
Anyway, just relating, correlating, from birth to baptism, we got nothing. We got the one event of the age of 12. We, got, we have a glimmer and a glimpse. That's all we have. And so we'll spend some time with that. And then we'll look at the baptism and we'll begin the ministry of Christ in, in earnest. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness in our lives. We do pray for our nation, Father. We can make jokes about certain things, but we are in your hands. And Father, we thank you for that. We thank you that our faith is in you and your faithfulness. That you are going to put in office who you want to put in office for your purpose. And we thank you for that. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.